0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to
2: New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Bristol. I am a host on the channel. Today we'll be speaking with Professor James Holmes about his book, A Brief Guide to Maritime Strategy. A Brief Guide is a readable introduction to the world of maritime strategy. While he bases his narratives on the writings of Mahan and Corbett, Professor Holmes weaves in a wide range of maritime political and philosophical to describe the importance of maritime strategy for any nation. His book guides junior officers and sailors in the art of strategic thinking and action. Professor Holmes outlines the global importance of maritime strategy, emphasizing how it supports all of a nation's endeavors, not just during war, but especially at peace. It forms an indispensable introduction to naval essentials and serves as a companion to more contemporary writers like Jeffrey Till and Wayne Hughes. In in this discussion, Professor Holmes and I cover a variety of topics, including the interaction between maritime strategy and culture, the importance of naval strategy for the peacetime world, China's naval development and strategic needs, as well as how naval strategy differs from and overlaps with the land domain. Thank you, Professor Holmes, for joining us today on the New Books Network. Uh, How are things up in Rhode Island?
1: Oh, things are fine up in Rhode Island for the most part. I mean, given that it's uh, it's obviously an unusual year that uh, that is that is dragging out, uh, we got a nice we got a nice little blanket of snow on the on the ground, which is which is always nice. And uh, we are still mostly virtual at, wor- at work. So, uh, so like everybody else, we are camping out at home and uh, doing things from the living room.
2: I'm sure all the students love not having to press, dry clean, or iron their uniforms.
1: Well, I mean, it's a sort of yes and no. I, I think that's I think that's probably one one upside, but uh, the fact that the fact is that a lot of the students have been here. We're going into the last uh, trimester, and they've not, and many of them have not been on campus, which makes which makes it very difficult, uh, especially for our international students who have come uh, from great distances to, to to attend the War College and have not uh, have not been able to actually do do anything face to face with their with their with their colleagues or their faculty or anybody else.
2: Yeah, it's a real shame. I know a lot of the war college experience is also networking and you know your your fellow officers. So uh, yeah, especially I mean, service international. Guys,
1: so. Yeah, I think you know I think we've I think we've gotten good at using Zoom and other and other platforms like that to, to have seminars. But you, you just can't replace the dynamism that uh, that happens in the classroom. I mean, I'm a when when I when I'm running a seminar, I do I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a scribbler. I I, I I write on the write on the board. Pretty much, uh, pretty much nonstop, and try to make connections and so forth. De- and there's, there's just no way to replace that. Plus, well, just not having face-to-face contact is just, it just takes something away.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. But hopefully, it makes uh, the writing process all the more important. So, uh, without further ado, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about the book. So, um, I know you, you present this as a primer on maritime strategy. So, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, and what are some, what were some of your objectives in writing the book?
1: Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, it's a, 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 in the foreword. I actually set it up to explain the logic of what I'm all about. I've I've, I've sort of made it my mission to try to to try to train, uh, well, midshipmen, newly commissioned officers, pe- people who are very jun- junior at the outset of their careers, to try to acquaint them though with the with the basics of maritime strategy. We find that we find that uh, officers will show up at the War College at mid-career, either uh, either as lieutenant commanders, sort of mid-grade, or 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 even more senior officers, without without really ever having studied maritime strategy. And in uh, different accession programs, whether it's OCS, but especially the the ROTC programs or the Naval Academy, they get they get a they get a decent dose of maritime history, U.S. naval history, but they don't actually they don't actually study the classics. And and I'm obviously as a teacher in the strategy and policy department, a true believer in the value of strategic theory. So the the so the, the basic idea is to to set them up and start start acquainting them with these these masters of strategy very early on. Not, a, not only so, so to, to help them get, a, get a, a jump ahead on their education, but also just to help them make sense of what they do on a daily basis. I, I represent the book in the foreword as, as, a, as a letter to my previous self, to myself 30 years ago when I was a junior officer and wondered about, wondered about why we were doing things like giving ship tours or having congressional delegations on board or, or whatever the case may be. These are things that are not only valuable, but they're actually diplomatically valuable. Often you have to maintain uh, decent relationships with lawmakers, with foreign uh, partners, and, and and friends, and so forth. So there's actually a, there's actually a lot to what we do on a daily basis, and the book tries to help uh, th- tries to help, uh, the junior officers make sense of it.
2: Yeah, well, and that, and that's great. You know, it's also continuing a tradition of the Navy War College. I think of all the war colleges, it has the reputation as being the uh, uh, historically, at least, the most strategically oriented, and maybe uh, maybe the most intellectual, if I can say that as a uh, as a fellow uh, navy officer myself um so it's, it's great to hear that tradition is continuing over
1: yeah well i mean that's obvious that's obvious what we what we think we do have that reputation and I, I actually believe it's warranted although it's a although it's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard without spending time at the other world War colleges to to hold forth too confidently just because i haven't uh, been there and worked and worked in those departments and, and dealt with their students i will say that i, I will say that uh when people are when people are thinking about the war college, it's not it is the naval war college, but we have a very joint a very joint student body. Uh, generally speaking, sort of roughly speaking, in a seminar of uh, of twelve, which is usually about what they are, usually about half the naval officers or half the half of that twelve is naval officers. But you're always going to have a marine, you're always going to have an at least one army officer, usually more an air force officer, and then uh, and then two or three uh, international officers. So it's so it's a, you're talking about a very cosmopolitan group. Yes, yes, we're the Naval War College, but we also are a very joint school as well.
2: Oh, that's yeah, that's great. That's great. So, you know, getting to the book, I, you know, one of the things that's interesting. I think you you accomplish uh, accomplish a good goal here, and it's a great introduction. It's uh, very tight, um, which makes it easy to handle, and it's pretty minimalistic. I, you know, it's divided into three parts. So, I found that it kind of struck me that organization while I was reading it. So, what was kind of what was your thinking in terms of writing it, and you know, why did you? Uh, why, why why did you have this particular organization that you that you did?
1: Well, you know you know uh, one, one time uh, President Lincoln Abraham Lincoln was asked uh, how long a man's legs needed to be and he, he said long enough to reach the ground I, I, I didn't I didn't go into it in fact, I very seldom these days uh, I, I do a lot of writing I do a lot of writing, not just books but a lot of uh, sh- a lot of short pieces and and a lot of times I don't even uh, don't even start with an outline. I just sit down and start to, and start writing. And the and whatever the piece of writing is uh, actually writes itself. I think I was a little bit more regimented uh, when when I go into a book project. But at the same time, but at the same time, it's, I didn't I didn't have some sort of master plan. There's no there's no there's no really there's nothing really uh, hidden in the in the structure of the book that uh, that explains its that explains its logic. I just basically I just basically go through it in, in the order that seemed best to me. What is what is the C? I start off by talking by defining what the what the sea is, reaching back to reaching back to Hans' ideas that this, the sea is a uh, uh, it's a wide thoroughfare, it's a, it's, it's a nautical highway that we can all use to carry on commerce, which he which he depicts as the as the chief purpose of maritime strategy, but also do military stuff such as we're familiar with uh, not only in, not only in wartime, obviously fighting for command of the sea, but also uh, uh, responding to humanitarian disasters in peacetime, doing all the doing all the, these things that navies do. When they're when they're not actually uh, engaged in fighting, so I start I start off and I look at that. I think I look at geography, talk about talk about the ideas about uh, where good sites for for uh, naval bases are and, and all related things. And then I and then I start and then I start uh, and then I start necking down towards uh, towards w- what navies actually do on the operational level in peacetime again and in and in wartime, which which obviously is a panoply of stuff, which is which is actually something interesting for uh, for a junior naval officer is just to to understand that navies do do a lot more stuff in peacetime than than say an army or an air force will, because uh, it's a, something it's a, about the nature of ships. The nature of ships simply suits them for, for missions like that. And, I, and I, that makes it a much, uh, that makes it a much more broader. I, I think it makes it a, a broader realm of strategy than to, than you run into with air or ground strategy.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, I think that's absolutely right. That's one of the thing that has struck me. And, you know, as we talked mentioned to you before this interview, I, well, I'm in the Navy, an officer in the Navy Reserves now. I was prior enlisted in the Army. And one of the things I, I noticed, even, and I was a linguist, and so that it's obviously entailed a lot of joint work. And one of the things I, I noticed about um, naval, and I, I would include Marines in this, uh, Marines and sailors, both uh, compared to uh, airmen and soldiers, was they always seem to be doing a lot more in peacetime than we did. Um, you know, the last 20 years, I think people kind of think of the Army and in the Marine Corps as well for ground fighting. They don't think of the Navy as being in combat. But as you mentioned in the book, you know, one of the striking differences between the Navy and the Air Force and the Army is that there is really a strong key role for the Navy in peacetime. And beyond that, uh, there's actually a non-military role for the Navy in terms of its support of commerce. So I, I was wondering if you could just kind of discuss that. Like, what, why is the Navy important for commerce and, and what, what kinds of things does it do for us aside from fighting wars?
1: Well, I mean, well, from a hand, from a hand, it's 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 how we it's, excuse me. Basically, he says that the the chief thing that qualifies a people. He says he spends a lot of time in, in his writings trying to figure out which which societies, which uh, which countries, which societies have the right stuff to take to the sea. And it's, in a sense, in a sense, he says it's it's a good thing to come from a resource poor country because that compels you if you want to become rich and do things in the world uh, that uh, that you deem worthwhile. It's a Having a resource-poor country drives you to the sea. If Great Britain, for example, which he depicts as the, uh, as the gold standard for sea power, which it was in his time in the late, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, Britain, Britain was fairly resource-poor. Britons had, had to go to sea and trade if they wanted to become wealthy, including, including to make enough money to pay for a, for a navy to support all, all this sort of trade. So it, it's, I call it a virtuous cycle that Mahan, that Mahan sees in, in maritime strategy. Whereby, whereby, in, in essence, uh, uh, you go to sea. You you you, str- you stitch together what they what what they call the supply chain, or what what he what he called the chain of sea power. Today, we would call it the, the supply chain between dis- distribution at uh, home, uh, ship- shipment over, over the sea, and then uh, ha- having access having access to, to uh, seaports on the far end, so that so that foreign customers can buy your wares to satisfy their wants and needs. This is, this obviously back back in Mahan's day it was a little bit different how governments derived their revenue they they, they derived revenue uh, directly from trade today it's a little bit uh, today it's a little bit different but nonetheless we know that foreign commerce is is what na- makes a nation rich and uh, and, the, and the federal government gets money and gets uh gets that revenue stream not not so much out of tariffs and whatnot but uh, but uh, but out of corporate income taxes and things like that so I think that I think the basic logic that Mahan sees uh, but. And commercially driven sea power is is still there. Yeah. Uh, now he he actually he, it almost feels like he turns he it almost seems like he turns our common understanding of sea power on its head. He does say he says he says you need access if you want to do all this stuff you need access to foreign to to foreign soil. But it, but he's he's actually very clear about what types of access and what and and what the relative importance among those types of access is commerce is king for him so you need commercial access so that your firms can go overseas and, and do trade and all these wonderful things generate that wealth but but and after that you need diplomatic representation so political representation so you need ambassadors and so forth but you need that, you need that purely to facilitate commerce and then only then only then do you need military access military access military access naval access Enhances pro- prospects for diplomatic representation, which in turn uh, serves commerce. So once you once you have that uh, cycle of sea power going, at that at that point, once you're generating that revenue, that actually gives you the money to pay for a navy to sa- to safeguard trade. So so again, Mahan, Mahan sees a supply chain, a commercial supply chain that essentially has its own guardian in the form of a navy, and that and, and the money helps fa- ha- ha- actually helps uh, fund. The, the, the naval protector for trade. So again, I, I call it a virtuous cycle, and my hand my certainly sees it as the the, the format, foremost tag task of statecraft for the leaders of a of a commercially order and seafaring republic like the United States. So again, it's a it's it, it feels it feels like a, a cycle that should be churning into the indefinite future as long as long as you want to, to remain a prosperous uh, seafaring nation.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's really interesting in thinking about it, and in, in, in you know. Uh, practical terms, you know, as a soldier and and dealing with ground forces, you often hear um, things kind of represented in a negative sense, like the warfighter is about uh, lethality, is about overcoming the enemy, is about destruction, it's about, you know, winning wars, fighting battles. And so, like I said, it's kind of negative. It's a destructive goal, which, which I think is appropriate for the context that the army operates in. It sounds like the Navy has you know, has that goal in wartime, but often has a more positive goal in terms of uh, constructing something. Um, And so I was wondering if you could, you know, what what your thoughts about that was, and uh, as well, if you could talk a little bit more about what are some of the differences between the strategic thinking that's suited for land uh, engagements for armies and the kind of strategic thinking and planning that we really need to have when we consider maritime strategy?
1: Yeah, I think I, I think I, I think you're right to say that. You know, yeah, I guess you could. I guess you would say that uh, navies and marine corps do have uh, do have positive fu- that sort of building function. And I, I mean, as as far as I mean, if you think about it, if you think about it, if we're doing naval diplomacy, maritime diplomacy all the time, even in peacetime, a lot of it's about uh, building relationships and, and preserving relationships. If we want to, if we want to, for example, I do Asia work uh, for, predominantly. If we want to keep keep our relationship with uh, allies such as Japan. Strong. Well, we need to. We need to. We need to impress upon the Japanese on our Japanese audiences that we are a trustworthy partner. Uh, we're able to to keep up our commitments to them. Uh, we are able to to actually over, overcome our adversaries in wartime. If we if we may if, if we are able to uh, make that sort of impression on our allies, they will have confidence in us, and they and they that confidence will uh, lead, lead them to, lead, lead them to keep their keep up their end of the bargain. If should we get into a fight uh, with a China or a Russia or whoever the case may be. So that's so I would describe a lot of it as uh, as relationship building as well, and 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 obviously there's a lot of non combat functions that actually go along with that. Uh, I mentioned humanitarian relief, uh, policing for the sea for uh, for, for a proliferation of, of guns of guns and. Uh, Weapons of mass destruction and so, and so forth. So there's a lot. Of, so there is indeed a lot of uh, a lot of constabulary stuff that goes along with the the, the, the diplomatic aspects in the humanitarian aspects. Uh, as far as, as as far as what differentiates uh, uh, d- uh, different different uh, types of military services and military power, I, I usually reach back to I usually reach back to uh, to Admiral Wiley, who was uh, he was actually he was actually here in Newport on the on the on the War College faculty and uh, and staff in the 1940s and 1950s we wrote a wonderful short short book even shorter than mine uh, called military strategy but one of one of the one of the this is actually a question that he takes on almost as an aside in that in that particular book he says that, and he says that essentially that people who people who come to the profession of strategy from different services they think differently they they bring different assumptions to the practice to the practice of strategy operations and tactics for example, for example, a ground warfare uh, a ground warfare uh, person would tend to assume that you have to win a big a big land engagement before you before you can uh, actually start exporting exporting the fruits of victory, whether it's uh, taking taking charge of an enemy's an enemy's national life as he called it economically or whatever, and, and so on and so forth. That's a, that's different from a, that's different from an air power from an air power uh, uh, officer. Wiley, Wiley contends that, that air that air power people come to to the practice of strategy, assuming that assuming that destroying something from the air is how you control it. And he thinks that, he, he, he thinks that's a that's a flawed assumption. But nonetheless, it seems to be uh, sort of woven into in, into how aviation services do things. Where and, and of course, Wiley is a naval officer. Uh, he, he he actually he actually thinks that. Uh, sea services think in think in terms of winning command of the sea. You can start you can start to, you can start applying pressure on your adversary's national life from day one, even before you have a big big naval battle and win command of the sea. So, so again, that's a that's a bit that's a bit of a different uh, a different way of, of thinking. And Wiley he actually undertakes this because he almost seems to despair of the, of our ability to actually have debates about joint strategy and actually and actually do do more than uh, reach the common denominator or the lowest common denominator. So he so he he goes through and he and he actually posits that uh, there may be a, a fundamental assumption that we can all agree on that would give us a, a more fruitful ability to to negotiate on strategy. He, he posits that it's in direction the concept the concept going back to to Sun Tzu in ancient China. Uh, as mediated by B. H. Littlehard in the early twentieth century. never have never have known whether I entirely totally sign on to that. But I think he's certainly right that that we need to look to, to look for a com- common vocabulary of strategy if we want if we want to improve the practice in the, in the making of strategy among different services. That's a, that that is a, I would say it's it's always important. I think I would say it's increasingly important today out in the maritime and out in the maritime domain simply because land forces and air, and ground based uh, air forces can now reach far out to sea. I've, I'm not sure if I've ever talked anybody into believing this, but I actually think that the, the United States Army is a maritime service. The United States Air Force is a maritime service as well, given that they're going to be doing a lot of stuff uh, in the Western Pacific in particular, but certainly out at sea. So,
2: that's The Army has been working on uh, some missiles and artillery pieces, I think, that uh, are supposed to have some, uh, some water reach, uh, if I remember correctly. Is that right?
1: That's absolutely, that's absolutely true. The the army and the marines have been. It's actually it's actually kind of a beautiful thing to see the army re-embrace that maritime past. I mean, sometimes you sometimes you'll get, a, get an army officer who will remind you that uh, certainly in absolute terms, the army did more amphibious stuff in the in the Second World War in the Pacific than the marines did, just because it's a much bigger service. General MacArthur commanded one commanded one of the, one of the major offensives uh, towards the Philippines. Very very not very nautical uh, service, and I think the army the army is. Perhaps, perhaps as a matter of uh, institutional self-preservation, is actually re, uh, regaining that maritime past. But yes, yes, they've certainly set out to equip themselves with a, a variety of uh, of missile artillery, uh, basically for use on on Pacific islands along the first island chain that stretches from Japan on south. This is where we think the fight that uh, may come up, and I think that, and I think that, and I think the army has embraced that. The air force, the air force is now doing stuff like. Uh, Arming arming its uh, bombers with uh, sea mines, anti ship anti ship missiles of various types, and so forth. So again, the air force I, w- I would say falls into that uh, category as well.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's funny. The uh, one of the things I, I, I did actually know that one of the things I, I would point out when I was uh, back in my days when I was not in the navy was that um, you know uh, there was the biggest uh, biggest uh, amphibious operation in hi- history was uh, there were no marines involved in it, and I actually. I think maybe this is an army, army propaganda, but I was always, was always told that there were no landings in the South Pacific that, uh, did not involve at least one soldier. So, uh, so, and and, and I, and and I think that it's interesting too. There's a, an article in the proceedings. uh, I was just reading it last night discussing, uh, you know, it's the same, same issue that your, your, uh, your essay appears in, um, discussing, uh, advanced base operations in the early 20th century. And one thing, something that struck me there was, uh, A sentence there uh, said, in a testament to joint integration, two marine officers were sent to the Army School for Submarine Defenses at Fort Monroe, Virginia, which uh, was news to me. I assume that school must have closed down a long time ago. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think it must. You know, it's actually there's there's really a lot of value. I mean, obviously, history history is a is an invaluable wellspring. of uh, insight and ideas, but uh, re- really a century ago, I think that that inter- that interwar era, I think, is, is is especially fascinating because of all the intellectual ferment that went on in the Navy and and, and our uh, and our and our sisters' services with regard to war with Japan or, or whatever the next big thing would be. But yeah, but yeah, certainly, 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 the in fact, I would uh, in in fact, I would describe the Marines certainly at that certainly at that time as the most intellectual of the services. They they really they really set out to learn. The, le- the lessons and codify the lessons that they learned from the Banana Wars, from the uh, in the 20s and 30s, from the Philippine War at the turn of the century. All these, all, all these things, they were, they, they all fit into Marine doctrine. The Marines published a wonderful book in 19 uh, in 1935 called the Small Wars Manual, which is still in print today, and I think I still, I think still informs how we do counterinsurgency in the maritime domain. So. So yeah, there's certainly certainly a lot of lot of lot of grist for for learning about strategy today by looking looking in the rearview mirror, and I think that's a particularly fruitful era.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
2: yeah i mean absolutely I, I think it's pretty incredible and i also think you know we were talking a little bit before the interview about groupthink thinking in, in, in the dod uh, in general and i think one of the things that was interesting then i i remember i can't remember where i read this maybe it was an interview They were discussing some of the differences between interwar the interwar period and officer formation and career paths and the ones today and you know i i think it's kind of funny there's a lot of uh there's a lot of positive reinforcement for education, that kind of thing today, which is good. You know, i, I definitely do not 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 saying that's negative. But, you know, what, one of the theories I heard for the reason why you had so many officers with unusual careers. I mean, you can think of still well, for example, you know, a four-star general who spent a lot of time in China as a diplomat yep. um, early in his career, which would be impossible for, I think, someone to reach that rank today and have spent that amount of time um, not in, you know, the command track. And so, you know, I, I heard one of the arguments for for that was actually that it was such a backwater professionally uh, that people kind of did whatever the hell they wanted because they were probably going to retire as a major.
1: Yeah, yeah, pr- pr- promotions were certainly as uh, slow as uh, slow as molasses in the interwar era. So, yeah, I, I would say that's I, th- I would say that's probably a, a reasonable to You know, it's actually it's actually kind of interesting to look back at some of the greats of uh, of, of the U.S. Navy and uh, and see how many of those people. I, I think this is a related phenomenon. A lot of, some of those some of those people went to. To, uh, d- different communities, if not all the all of, all the communities between the subsurface and the service community, and of course the aviation community. Admiral Admiral uh, Nimitz started off less started off life as a submariner, and of course ended up being a, sur- a surface sailor before he rose to uh, to flag rank. Uh, Admiral King, who was our CNO during the Second World War, actually actually got his uh, actually got his aviator's wings uh, very late in life, as did uh, as did Halsey, I think. So. Yeah, there's, there was definitely, there was, we definitely were not nearly as stratified as we are today. It would almost be unthinkable to do that kind of thing today.
2: Yeah, it's, 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 really, it's, it's really hard to imagine. Um, so, you know, along with that, think about things that are hard to imagine and then and, and drawing from the past. You know, another thing that I, I have long thought about, um, especially, you know, in my transition from ground forces to naval forces is, you know, what so many people think of naval threats as past you know, as something that hasn't happened or that that that's not going to happen, basically. You know, I think it's kind of an end of history thing. And they have a hard time as a result conceptualizing, one, what naval warfare will look like. And and that's a tactical question, which, you know, feel free to answer. But also on the strategic level. like what what would the world be like without an American Navy? You know, I mean, I think people assume that if the Navy weren't there, things would kind of keep going because pirate ships are maybe there's a couple of Somalis and a skiff somewhere in the You know, in the uh, Red Sea, but there's there's certainly no one around now that's going to be doing real piracy. So, so what would the world be like without an American Navy? What does the American Navy do for us in in those terms?
1: Yeah, I think you're. you're right to call. You're right to call attention to the to the constabulary task. Piracy, obviously, it's like it's like it's actually on the decline in the in the Western Indian Ocean, but it's actually it's actually uh, making a it's a, I'm not, I don't have a clear sense of how bad it is, but is certainly the Gulf of Guinea has a has a piracy problem as well in the South Atlantic. So it's, it never really it never really goes away. In fact, if you if you read if well, Thucydides in his history of the Peloponnesian War starts off by uh, reviewing so uh, farther back into Greek history, he he actually contends that the first Greek navy was actually founded to 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 combat piracy uh, in the in the dim mists of time. So. So, so again navies navy, have that sort of constabulary function if you did not have if we did not maintain a navy here in the United States uh, well, that's a, that would that would be a really uh, hard thing to envision but I, I, would, I would just I would assume that that we would see that we would see that part of the, that part of the international system to somebody who to somebody who did who did actually invest in the Navy whether it's uh, whether it's the European Union whether it's China obviously has put has put a lot of resources into its Navy over the last quarter century and so forth. So yeah, the
2: Chinese you, you, shipbuilding rates are pretty incredible over the last few years. As
1: I yeah, they they, they certainly mean. are. In fact, in fact, uh, the, I, in fact, I find their build up uh, rather rather impressive. It's it, it, well, you, sort of beyond beyond rather impressive. It's extremely impressive what they managed to do. They they essentially started from from almost zero in the mid nineteen nineties resolved to resolve to build to build the navy, uh, and a quarter century later have actually have actually made it happen. Now, it, not not to make this a China a China talk, but. Uh, but one thing, one thing for one thing for readers to think about is, uh, yes, yes, the Chinese Navy. When you see pictures of their ships, they actually look a lot like ours. They look extremely impressive and, and well kept, and so forth. But they are, but in a sense, they're black boxes in that in that we can't really peek peek inside. That we can see the outward appearance of, the, of, of China's Navy, but we don't really know whether they've actually staged a leap to parity with us technologically. Uh, or whether they're a generation behind, or, or perhaps even more. That 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 actually makes a big difference in who is the stronger force. The Soviet Navy was always uh, always much more numerous than we were. Uh, certainly by the 1970s and 80s. But at the same time, nobody would have said the Soviet Navy was the superior combat force. So that's a so that's a, that's a way to think about naval power is that don't, don't get too don't get too obsessed with the bean counting aspects of of it. But uh, but I, but I, but actually ask the harder questions about who is actually stronger than whom. So that's a, and uh, let's yeah. Could you go back? We, I think we, I went off on a tangent there. We we started talking about uh, oh oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, I remembered that we were going to we were going to talk about uh, why we were so hard to envision what naval warfare would look like today. It, it, you know, part of it's because part of it is because you mentioned the end of history. I, I literally saw that. I literally saw the United States Navy tell us tell itself that the end of history had arrived in 1992. Strangely enough, the year that uh, Frank Fukuyama published a famous book, The End of History, the, Na- the Navy and the Marine Corps essentially said naval history had ended. That was the, that was the year when they, they issued their first effort at uh, post Cold War strategy, a document called "From the Sea. And in the preamble to end of the preamble to that document, it, it specifically says we own the sea. The Soviet Navy is gone. there's nobody else to challenge us for command of the sea, and therefore we can restructure ourselves as a fundamentally different naval service. Essentially, essentially a service that does not have to fight for for maritime command because nobody will challenge it. That's a, a you know that's a, that actually made sense for a while in the 1990s because the so the Soviet Navy was gone, Russia was in turmoil, ch- turmoil. China had not yet uh, set on, uh, on its naval build up, but at the same time, at the same time, if you if you tell yourself that your that that your primary mission fighting for command of the sea is is no more, well, what do you do? The Navy essentially the, the Navy. Essentially, stopped doing doing more than perfunctory efforts to keep up its uh, its proficiency at surface warfare, anti-air warfare, all the things you have to do to fight a to to fight a peer navy. And if you do that for long enough, then a, you you almost have a hangover. It's really hard to get back into it, get back into a rhythm and start and start thinking in battle-minded terms. And that's kind of that's kind of where we are right now. I think we're still getting over that end of history thinking. And I think I think we I think we've uh, have have lagged in uh, up until recent years just because uh, just because we spent so much time assuming that we owned the sea and that we would never have to fight for command of it. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's really simple things. Like, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned missiles. We we used to have a Tomahawk, a tomahawk anti ship missile when I was when I was on sea duty, uh, which has been a while back now. We we actually dismantled the inventory of Tomahawk anti ship missiles and left ourselves with no long range anti ship missile. Uh, something that's at a premium in naval warfare today, we're having to know, we're now having to try to reinvent that uh, maritime strike tomahawk. It's actually it is actually happening. I mean, that's that's the good news is some of these things are coming to fruition. But we got we got a very late start as we saw as we saw China start to make itself a, a contender of note as Ro- as Russia the Russian Navy started to get its mojo back and so forth. So, it's a, so again, very, very, very dangerous ever to t- ever to tell yourself and especially to instruct the service that your primary mission is no more and that, it, that you can stop preparing for it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, a, that's an interesting point. We've been in kind of a weird situation for the last 30 years. I think, you know, there's traditionally a dichotomy drawn in, in, in historical military history and strategic terms between land powers and, and sea powers. And, you know, I. I think we, uh, in many ways, the United States, and it has been in the past, you know, the first real military force that we built up was the Navy. Um, And for a variety of reasons, including, you know, security ones, the argument in the early Republic was often that a Navy was better for a Republic to have than the army because the Navy couldn't go beyond the shores and attack its own people. Um, And so we first built up the Navy. We had, you know, huge maritime industry uh, for a long time. And then in the last 30 years, I think we've kind of forgotten about um almost i mean with air power and the kind of transit that we have and i think people forget how much we relied on the sea to to actually move materiel over to the middle east but we kind of look at the sea i think as a place that we skip over in order to perform military operations uh, which again like i said is interesting compared to our history so one of the things that i'd like to ask you professor holmes is um are is the united states a land power or a sea power
1: yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. It's, it, I'm not sure there's actually a, a fixed answer to it, but it, it is a debate that's a, that's ongoing. Mahan, Mahan co- contends that you can you could a nation can be both, but not for very long. He he doesn't think he doesn't think that any nation can could, uh, uh, could stand up to the rigors of funding funding great sea power and great land power at the same time. I think that uh, it would be interesting to if we could uh, if we could conjure him up today and ask him what he thinks about the United States today because I think I think I think we certainly qualify as both but I mean but in a sense that's a, it's it's a historical accident and, a, and an accident of geography where we often so we oftentimes say the United States can be a land power because it has a weak neighbor to the north weak neighbor to the south and also friendly neighbors uh, water to the left water to the right so in a, so in a sense in a sense we don't have we don't, don't have those those burdens that go along with being a land power. Uh, as China as China does obviously with with lots of neighbors as Russia does as as most as most nations do that have uh, that live in a tougher neighborhood than we do so so in a sense the United States can can have it both ways I think that I, I think if you look at if you consider China uh, if you consider China we we oftentimes describe it as a hybrid land sea power uh, just just because of the geography. Uh, sitting uh, sitting in the rimlands uh, of East Asia, bordering India, border bordering a lot of nations with uh, some with very formidable militaries and, and some of the nuclear armed as well. So, China, so in a, so in a sense, China has it a lot tougher than we do as it tries to go out to sea. China also China also has uh, has a geographic problem simply simply because as it tries to go to sea, simply because it, has, it the the first island chain that runs parallel to the coast more or less uh, is all, is all inhabited by U.S. friends and allies. So essentially, so essentially, China ha- China faces a lot more difficult difficult problem than the United States does. Trying to get out to sea, we can we can think about access to foreign coasts. We don't have to worry about getting out to sea, uh, coming out of Norfolk, Virginia, or, uh, or or San Diego, or wherever. China has to worry about access uh, for, from the time a ship casts off lines in uh, Shanghai or whatever seaport uh, you pick, getting even just getting out into the, into the Pacific Ocean, into the Western Pacific Ocean. So. And they, so, so, so there's 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 sort of two hybrid land sea powers as well. I, I guess the I guess the I guess probably the quintessential land power would be Russia. But but at the same time, I think that's that's probably changing as well, uh, or at least potentially changing with, with climate change making those waters along uh, Russia's uh, northern periphery accessible, and thus uh, and thus thus letting Russia carry on commerce uh, at sea and also do naval stuff at sea as well so i'm not a big I'm not a big believer in that uh, that uh, sharp dichotomy between land powers and sea powers i think i do I do think most nations are more or less uh, hybrids of one or the other
2: yeah I mean I think I think it's an interesting point I, yeah I, I would kind of be inclined to agree with that um, but you know one of the things that enables either maritime prowess uh, alone or or kind of the joint um, aspect is something you cover in the book, which is, uh, a culture or a, a spirit, um, that, you know, lends itself to just going towards the sea. And, you know, I, I think, um, and again, this has changed, not necessarily just as a result of the Navy, but also as a result of technology, uh, you know, um, in the past you could think of ports, port cities like Boston, um, Savannah, uh, where I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, um you know, that, not that Jacksonville Fords really was a port back in the day, but it is a port now, um, you know, and, and old ports had, the port was really integrated into the city itself, like Newport, for example, you know, most of uh, Newport is situated right along what used to be a busy uh, merchant port. So nowadays, um, you know, these ports are often removed from cities, uh, no longer are shipping concerns really family. Uh, businesses. They're often, you know, corporations that people don't really necessarily have a direct connection to. Um, When you ship goods overseas, you don't really need to go talk to any of the shippers themselves. You can kind of do freight contracts at arm's length. Um, So I I was wondering, you know, what impact does this have on maritime culture, uh, both in general and in the United States? Is maritime culture the same that it is now as it was yesterday? Um, and does the u.s maintain the same kind of maritime culture that it once had
1: yeah I think the, I think the answer is that, yeah I would be I, I would be prepared to say no I, I, I actually don't don't think it is that it's 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 seawater actually runs through our veins in the way it did maybe a century ago or certainly after the second world war I mean there's a this is a, I mean this is a, again mahan mahan talks about maritime culture I mean he, he talks about he talks about uh, all these, all these tenants that make an, that qualify a nation to go to sea, and one of them, one of them is, uh, he calls it the character of the people. Does it, I mean, it's, as you point, as you point out, uh, it, the sea feels rather remote. Even even right here, I live. I live less, less than a mile from the water. I I go walk along the Narragansett Bay just about every day. But but again again it does feel rather impersonal. Ships come up to the to the uh, port of Providence, right past the ha- right past the house, more or less. They 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 more at, at various piers. You never you never see you never see sailors out in town. They just basically stay on the ship. And so so again they, so again there's not that sort of mingling that uh, that sort of mingling that uh, that spreads seafaring culture and and also allows for cultural interaction with uh, with with sailors who actually actually crew those ships. So I think that I think it is. I think it actually is a problem, but I mean but if it's a problem on the coast, if it's a problem here in Newport, Rhode Island or in uh, or like you said in Jacksonville places like places like that, think I think, think about it in the deep deep into the heartland of the country. Think about it to, I was in, uh, I was out to uh, Kansas City to the to the National World War One Museum to give a talk on uh, on the armistice a couple of years ago. loved Kansas City. I thought it was a great town, but I, it really it really made me feel uneasy to be that far from the ocean. Yes, you have the Missouri River and, and that and so forth, which is nice. But wow, I mean, think I mean how, how much maritime consciousness is there going to be for somebody deep and deep, deep in the heartland who do, who never even sees the who never even sees the ocean, uh, and who doesn't really have uh, much relationship to it? I mean, it's, it's. I think I think if you ask a person like that, is a navy important? They would probably say yes, but they're not going to really feel it in their guts. So I think that, and I, and I think that's a real problem. So just just being the size of the United States and having so many so many different regions, many of them far from the sea, I think is actually it, it actually makes it a tough sell. Uh, is as far as con- continuing a maritime culture. China, you know, China, is another thing because they have a very very single minded leadership that is very very targeted on the sea, and it's, and obviously it's an authoritarian society that's able to that's able to uh, put 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 matters in front of the people and insist that they take note. We don't really have we don't really have that, and I think that's a dangerous thing. I will say this, not just the United States, though. Even 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 Australia, even even Great Britain itself, once once the the gold standard for sea power uh, leadership, leadership there oftentimes complains about what they call sea blindness, basically relying on the sea, relying on the sea, with actually with, without actually taking it seriously that you need to. Do things. Field the navy to to to, to, to uh, take care of the sea and make sure that that maritime hi- highway is always open. So 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 I guess the short answer: No, I don't think we have the same maritime culture. What's the what's the uh, what's the response? I mean, how do we do it better? I think that I think that's kind of where the debate is, and I'm not I'm not entirely sure that I know the answer either.
2: Yeah, and and what you know, so and what 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 impacts has have has this uh, decline in the maritime spirit had? um on our naval forces in general you know i mean you mentioned some some concerns about you know lack of government support lack of popular support in the imagination but you know um how have we seen that manifest itself in the actual naval forces of this country
1: uh well, well you know I, I guess it's i mean you, you could sort of come at it from the governmental angle i mean it's, it's certainly you, you don't have all, all that many uh, navy veterans in congress anymore that makes it that makes it a little more difficult to reach out to lawmakers and, and convince them that uh, that what we are asking for in budgets and for and fleet design plans all these sorts of things are actually are actually important that's a that's a, that's a point that Admiral Wiley uh, makes in his book uh, in, in a different discussion from uh, when he was talking about the air Force culture and so forth he, he actually points out he says look you, you military people, you naval people, when you go to talk to lawmakers, you had better not use a lot of jargon. I mean, don't don't use this insider language because it, because in effect, you will be keeping secrets from them, keeping secrets from people who make strategic decisions through the budgetary process all the time. So, it, as as you can as you can imagine, as you have fewer and fewer John McCain's in Congress or or, or other Navy veterans in Congress, that prospect, that prospect for for Congress for Congress people not not to get what you're talking to them about. Is, is is even is even more so. So I think so. I think that that would be certainly uh, one problem. One one problem. Obviously, popular support for the navy. P- people people will tend to uh, uh, people will tend to uh, put uh, social program. You know, put their favorite social programs or whatever their domestic priorities are over 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 funding a navy that's able to actually go out to sea and win command of the sea. And that's it. Makes perfect sense. I mean, what what do you do every day? You go to work. You try to make a living for your family. You hope for security and so forth. These are the things that are going to uh, they're going to they're going to rank higher on your personal priority than so, something that feels kind of it's a it's obviously out of sight for the unless you live in a, in a, in a vibrant naval port and and you assume that, that it's always there, that it's always there. Common common talking point for, for Navy leaders is that uh, the Navy is the Navy's sort of like oxygen. You don't notice it until you don't have it. And at that point, you really need it badly.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think there's also a broader strategic consequence which you know we, 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 i know is uh often written about in among naval thinkers today that i'd love for you to elaborate on which is you know its effect on commerce you know the decline in um, in merchant shipping and not just merchant shipping but civilian ship capacity is that something uh you know in terms of uh, fewer merchant mariners fewer american flag vessels this that and the other i mean is that part of a, a naval maritime concern and how do strategists or how should strategists think about uh, merchant shipping and uh, potentially America's lack thereof?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem of, in, a, in a lot of ways. I, I would say, I would say the sort of the immediate thing is yes, we have, we, we need merchant, we need merchant seafaring. I mean, it's, we, we need, we need demographically speaking, we need a vibrant maritime community. So, so people who are skilled in shipbuilding uh, obviously, who who actually go out and, and drive ships around and, and carry goods, uh, carry goods overseas, do all these do all these things that commercial seafaring involves. If you don't have, if you don't have that, I mean, there, there, there's there's going to be there's going to be a, a carryover effect on your ability to to build and maintain a navy and operate that navy uh, operate that navy proficiently. So, so in a, sense, in a sense, that sort of demographic decline of that of that of that community in the United States is a real problem. The more immediate operational uh, problem is that uh, simply we. If we if we, if we need to, we we'll we always said the navy only uh, plays away games. We we we, we fight in uh, off the uh, uh, off the off the rimlands of East Asia or Western Europe, whatever the case may be. Perhaps even in South Asia today, and it, t- it takes a lot of shipping. To, it takes a lot of shipping to get stuff and people to theater, theaters of conflict. We it's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to get a, a firm number on the numbers of uh, on the numbers of merchant uh, marine hulls that we actually have available to us to, to, to carry war material and people. But it, it appears to me it appears to me that we have fewer ships that are actually available for sea for sea left today than were damaged or sunk during the the the, uh, the the first year of World War II out in the Atlantic in 194 in nineteen forty two. So if you so if you, if you if you assume that a China or a Russia or some other adversary is going to try to obstruct our ability to get material into the theater, and that's exactly what they will do, then I think I think we have to, we have to expect expect that we will suffer casualties, and we we really need to bud to bulk up that merchant fleet, or else we we simply won't be able to get it done if we get in the scrap in, in, in a faraway theater like Asia or, or Europe. So so it's sort of the cultural aspect, and then the operational aspects, and, and both I think we're wanting.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think it's uh, that, that's a wonderful illustration of your discussion about the virtuous circle, or cycle, um, you know, uh, the other side of it. You know, on the one hand, people like Mahan were really thinking about how the Navy in, in, in uh, uh, pushes forward commerce and supports commerce. But, you know, the flip side of it is with the maritime spirit, commerce really inculcates that maritime spirit and lets people know why they should care about the Navy. You know, and causes more naval veterans to be in public places and, you know, advertises what the Navy really does for them. And so it's kind of a deflationary cycle almost um, in terms of the decrease of merchant shipping.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think think this is actually we were talking about the end of history a little while ago. I think I think this is actually a related phenomenon and this is a non strictly naval thing. I think American society actually succumbed to that sort of end of of history thinking as well. In fact, I started studying international relations as I mentioned in the early nineteen nineties, right after the Cold War. And I remember when I started going to classes, uh, going into classes, that people would say, "Yeah, geography doesn't matter. Force doesn't matter. Everything is commerce today." I think that I, don't, I think that the United States, I think, I think Americans were not especially geographic thinkers in general. But at the, but and, and I think we actually made it much worse. If you, you would have a very distinguished scholars saying that, "Hey, it's a globalized age. Ge- geography no no longer matters." And geography obviously includes the sea, which covers most of the globe as well. So I think we've, I think we've, as a society, as well as as the navy, I think we're actually making a return to history. You don't find people saying that kind of thing anymore, but that was really in the air. Uh, I would say, I would say, certainly up until the turn of the century, and and probably probably far left, far after that. I remember, I remember having back back and forth in print. Of, uh, with uh, again with with pretty distinguished people about whether geography matters. It's obvious to military and naval people that it does, but if, but uh, but it's it's kind of easy for people who do not go out and serve serve in the armed forces. It's kind of easy to say that kind of stuff. And there's actually and there's actually political and strategic implications to that sort of blind spot.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a famous uh, what is it, it was a, a article uh, the ge- geographical importance of power. I mean, it was the turn of the twentieth century, right? I think it's eighteen nineties nineteen. Yeah, McKinder. Um, yeah. 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 So just in case anybody uh, is not fully convinced, what are, what is the importance of uh, geography in terms of both maritime strategy and other ones?
1: Well, I mean, it, you know, President Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, he, he he started off his uh, fireside chats during World War II by, t- by, by asking Americans to take out their atlas. He would always say, look at your map, especially in his famous uh, fireside chat on Washington's birthday uh, in 1942, which, of course, which of course, will be, uh, I guess, uh, we're, we are commemorating tomorrow. So. Uh, and, and, the, and he actually he actually believed he fervently believed that looking at the map is the way is the way to gain to gain wisdom and strategy. He would he would he would essentially ask Americans to look and he would he would show how we were going to try to or he would show the danger of the, of the axis actually uh, actually potentially encircling the United States uh, from from uh, from Europe and Asia. And he, and he would basically just, in, in very simple terms, put it to them. He was he was probably the most geographically minded president uh, that I know. That I know, of. Theodore Roosevelt, I guess, would 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 fall into that category as well. But but yeah. So, so there are big figures who testified to the importance of geography. But I mean, again, so just to just pull out your, I mean, get at your globe and look at look at the globe and think about how hard it is to try to wage war in China's backyard, where China has all the advantages that could that go to the home team. Especially if you have to cross uh, 6,500 miles of water, that and, and probably fa- and probably face opposition even as you go when you leave Honolulu or when you leave uh, San Diego, you're gonna you're gonna face opposition from China's military long before long before you get to the to the combat zone, whether it's uh, the Taiwan Strait or so. Think I mean think about how hard it is for us to go and preserve Taiwan's ind- uh, independence in the Taiwan Strait, only only about 90 miles from Chi- from mainland China. That right, there, that right there shows exactly how difficult this uh, this 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 uh, practice of strategy force design all of these things are. So, well, I mean, and I, yeah, and doing.
2: I think I think you're mentioning Taiwan there is a is a perfect uh, a perfect example of uh, something that we you started talking about earlier too is you know and with China it cuts both ways. I think uh, not to excuse excuse China's actions in the South China Sea, but it, I think it becomes a lot more reasonable when you. As you mentioned, you look around and you see how hemmed in they are uh, by our allies, by powers that are not necessarily friendly to China and that in some cases like Vietnam are becoming potentially less friendly to China as time goes on. Uh, You can really understand, I think, from a geographic perspective why they want to push out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, again, going back to looking at the map, the first island chain, there is no Chinese seaport that outflanks the first island chain. If, and, and that's one of that's one reason that's all the, all the way back to the Cold War but I think you're seeing a renewal of this uh, this idea that we, that we can use the island chain use military forces on the island chain to apply commercial and military pressure on China and obviously China is very is, is very cognizant of that it's first island chain stares them in the face every time every every day when they get up when they get up in the morning and look eastward out to, out to, out to sea so I think I mean I don't think you need to have sympathy with our potential enemies let alone with anybody else, but you certainly do have to have a measure of empathy. Try to try to see the world the way that they do. And that helps you get some, uh, some glimpse of what, what they might do uh, in the future to try to, to try to beat this strategy.
2: So this next question will be one of our last, uh, it might be, uh, might be an unfair one because it is outside of your uh, realm of expertise, but it, it kind of came to my mind while you were talking, you know, uh, I certainly remember, and I, I assume you probably were of this uh, inclination where you were a much younger person, um, you know, being a, a, I wouldn't even say young man, a boy, and pulling out, I don't know, whether it was the encyclopedia or an actual atlas or just maps and looking at maps and kind of thinking about, you know, just not even thinking seriously about places, but, you know, just kind of, you know, like, oh, I, I wonder what that place is like, and, you know, just kind of looking at where things are. and. I, you know, with the internet now and the way we access maps and I'd be, I'd be curious to know how many people actually do that. I I bet you a lot of, a lot of people don't. Do you think that that has any impact on some of these issues of strategy and conception's geography? The fact that when we do interact with maps, it's not often, um, by looking at a whole map and trying to find your way through the map and locating yourself in a broader perspective, but it's more like plugging coordinates into a gps or addresses and just getting out uh getting directions and not really seeing or reading a news article and just kind of seeing here's the city and not seeing the context do you think that has any impact on uh the way we conceptualize these problems today
1: yeah i think i think i think you're onto something i mean it's 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 very i mean i I could call up uh, google earth on my laptop laptop in about 30 seconds it's right on my uh, desktop so uh, so obviously we, we do have a lot of cartographic uh, information right in front of us. So you, I mean, it's, it's great. You can measure distances and whatnot uh, right there, right there on your desktop. But I think, I think it might be perhaps even a deeper issue than that. I I don't know about you and I'm just spitballing here at this point, but uh, I certainly find, I certainly find that reading a physical book is very different. I, I read on the Kindle as well and, and obviously read the internet and all that, all that kind of stuff. I don't find it to be the same thing. And I actually don't, I actually don't, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it really s- stays with me the same way. Picking up picking up a, a physical book, an atlas, in this case, if we're talking about talking about geography, and just sitting there and studying, I think that if, psychologically, I think there's actually I think there's actually uh, I think it's actually it registers with you more. I don't I don't, I don't even know how, how exactly to say it, but I've, I've noticed this over the years. If I if 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 I'm studying a book, if I if I want to put it in my intellectual capital for the future, I always get the physical book. If I if it's just for entertainment, I do Kindle or so or, or whatever, just because you don't really care about it. But but yeah, I think I, I think there I, I do think I do think that there's sort of a staying power to to physical products, including Alice's that uh, uh, that helps you that helps you really feel it in your guts. Geogra- geographic relationships to one another. Nicholas Spikeman, by the way, if anybody if anybody really wants to study uh, to study geography, I, 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 you could not do better than go to his books from during the World War II era, "The Geography of the Peace" and also "America's Strategy and World Politics." He he draws he draws a lot of these geographic relationships out. He also he also says you just have to remind yourself once in a while you need you need to go and look at the globe once in a while just to to refresh basic geographic concepts uh, in your mind. For example, and he gives he gives the example of the of the fact that uh, the vast majority of, of South America lies east of Washington D.C. I, so, I certainly have a very vertical a very vertical understanding of Western Hemisphere geography, and that just doesn't make a, a darn bit of sense to me. But it's actually true. So if you if you go to if you go to Rio de Janeiro, which I did, which I had the good fortune to do a couple of years ago, you actually go forward, you actually go forward in time or uh, in time zones, and not and not and not just uh, uh, stay in the same time zone. So
2: kind of fascinating. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, another one of those little factoids that that is that is interesting. I mean, this you don't necessarily get from an atlas, but you know, London is several hundred miles closer to New York City than New York City is to L.A. You know, which is uh, also something that I, you know, when you talk about things like the two coast Navy, uh, which we don't unfortunately have enough time to get into, um, uh, but you know, make is it has interesting consequences for that. I.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, I guess we are starting to wind down on time, but yeah, the I mean, Spikema points out. and need. He's trying again. He's trying to impress upon us the the importance of geography, and yeah, he contended that when the when the Panama Canal opened in nineteen fourteen, nineteen fifteen. He points, out, he points out that, in a sense, in a commercial sense, that actually that it was not only a game changer for the navy, letting us sw- swing fleets back and forth between the Atlantic and the, and the Pacific much more easily, but also from a from a commercial standpoint, all of a sudden, New York City, our dominant seaport at the time, is closer to Shanghai or, t- or to North China rather than Liverpool, the major British trade trading port, and, uh, and obviously New York's major major competitor. So, in a sense, digging that in a sense digging that canal teleported New York to New York City by steaming miles. Far, far, far closer to East Asia, which which was thought to be fantastically uh, wealthy and a great place, in a great place to trade. So, and he, he points out there was a cultural impact to that as well. The United States, because of our of our heritage, has always looked towards Europe. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the canal, the canal has transformed the Caribbean into a maritime highway. All of a sudden, Americans are also looking south and thence towards the Pacific to the to the west. So again, ge- to changing ge- changing geography is obviously a big deal as well. Suez Canal, same deal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so uh so like I said, unfortunately we, we are running out of time. So I I guess my last question to you, Professor Holmes, would be if uh you were I I won't even say chief of naval operations, who became the secretary of the navy, uh, Joe Biden's new secretary of the navy, what are some of the uh, initiatives that you would do to either ensure that people are more aware of maritime strategy or to uh, shore up our position um you know, uh, vis-a-vis the, the maritime domain.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I guess in, I'm not going to become secretary of the Navy. Nobody's nobody's asked. So, so, so uh, in fact, you, you don't want me to try to run the Navy. I haven't, I haven't run anything big in a, in a very long time. So, but say, but we are actually. You mentioned the proceedings, the current issue of na- the naval Institute proceeding. We're actually we're actually making an attempt to, to get the to get the word out, certainly within the services and to help the, to help uh, service people, mar- Marines, uh, Marines and naval officers and enlisted, uh, to help them become good spokesmen for the Navy. In, in, in hopes that uh, that the word will seep out, and seep out as they interact with their fellow, fellow citizens uh, out in town, uh, on deployment or whatever. So we're doing something called the the American Sea Power Project, which is an effort to carry on a, a year long conversation in print about the importance of a, of a great navy. We have a, we have a pretty good lineup you know, of people uh, uh, whom you've heard of who are going to weigh in. But I, th- I think that's uh, and I think that's going I think that's going to be helpful personally I, I think that's. I think it needs to be we need to make an effort to get sea power back into the into the popular culture. I mean that's, a, that's, a, that's what, where you could possibly really have an impact. I would, th- I, would I would think we, we, there are certainly books about the Second World War and the Pacific sell like hotcakes. You know you have Ian Toll, you have James Hornfish. These guys are great storytellers. We need sto- we need people who are great storytellers to help get the word out. But I, I would actually take it even farther than that, and, and try to get and try to get fiction writers in on it. I mean, think of think about the impact that C.S. Forrester had on public opinion in Great Britain during the during the Second World War, simply because he was a gifted storyteller. People people in Britain loved a, a good story about the sea, and I, so if it, if you have a Joseph Conrad, if we had if we had if we had great fiction writers, uh, out there out there out there in the public today, who could actually who could actually. Who could actually just get that back into the zeitgeist? I think that I think that would actually help people. Uh, it would it would actually help them think about the navy. If, you know, if people think about the navy, the chances are they're going to reach uh, conclusions that uh, that are acceptable and and, and provide their support uh, to this to this vital effort that to, that we're that we embarked upon.
2: That's great, sparking the imagination. I like it. Yeah, I think absolutely. that's uh, yeah, that's absolutely. a good a good spot to end on. So just. What I'd like to say, uh, we mentioned uh, the proceedings a couple of times in this interview. For people who may not know, uh, the proceedings is the uh, it's a, a monthly uh, magazine journal that is put out by the U.S. Naval Institute, which is uh, run out of, I think, uh, Baltimore. Um, and uh, it is a kind of gold standard uh, for all maritime services, U.S. Coast Guard, Marine Corps, U.S. Navy, uh, many other services, members of the other services read it regularly if you are interested uh it is not too expensive and uh you should uh keep track of what's going on uh you can just join up anyone can join the u.s naval institute all right yeah, so uh per-
1: yeah go ahead i was just gonna say it's actually in annapolis it, 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 it actually it actually the, the building actually faces the u.s naval academy they actually they actually run a good scholarly press as well which is where my where, where I, uh, p- I uh publish most of my books
2: and as a, a small tidbit of information uh, or a trivia i guess they were uh the press that first published uh, *Hunt for Red October*, so Tom Clancy's inaugural publisher was uh, USNI.
1: Yeah, I don't think he could. Find, I don't think Tom could find a publisher, and they so they so they did it, and they and they just made money hand over fist. Yeah, that was that was really a great a great gift for them. Strangely, strangely, my my very last time out at sea before uh, coming out to, coming to shore duty, uh, Clancy actually came and wreck came and uh, rode on board. So it was it was kind of neat to meet him. He was a guy. He was kind of a fascinating guy because he wanted to hang out with the when the enlisted people. So he he hung out in the chiefs' mess and places like that, and uh, and he, he kept us officers uh, more or less at arm's length. But yeah, he was a good dude. <laughs>
2: that's a that's a great story. All right, Professor Holmes. Well, I really certainly enjoyed the chat, and uh, you know, uh, hopefully. Uh, Next time you publish a book, uh, we will be able to invite you over and uh, continue our conversation.
1: Yeah, I've got another, got another one coming later this year.
2: Oh, what's it about?
1: Uh, you know, I've always wanted to write a little bit of philosophy, so, so it's I, I call it the habits of the habits of modern, or excuse me, habits of highly effective maritime strategists. I start all the way with Aristotle and and, and spend a lot of time with the philosophers, but basically make the make the case that strategy is a family of habits that we should all groom ourselves with in order in order to excel at the practice of strategy.
2: Oh, fantastic! Well, I look forward to reading it. All right, thank you, Professor Holmes, and uh, thank you for joining us today for. The new, uh, a new book on the New Books Network.